Hi, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespa.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women and author of the Amazon bestseller, You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich. And this is The Wallet. The Wallet is here to help you make better financial decisions by talking honestly about money. I'll be sharing my best tips, inspiring you to take charge of your financial futures and talking to an array of awesome guests from all walks of life, employees, freelancers, entrepreneurs, and money experts. As the pandemic continues to impact personal finances across the world, research shows that women and minority groups are being disproportionately affected. That's why it's increasingly important that financial products such as bank accounts, saving products, and financial advice are accessible and inclusive for everyone. The FCA estimates that in the UK, 1.3 million adults don't have access to a bank account. Can technology and the rise of online banks such as Starling or Monzo help make personal finance more inclusive and empower customers to take control of their money? My guest today is Nina Mohanty, financial technology expert who has had an incredible career in the financial tech industry, working for some of the biggest startups that have transformed the way we manage our money. Nina is an advocate for financial inclusion, working on products that champion inclusion and help users build financial resilience, allowing them to be more prepared for life's unexpected events, as well as its opportunities. Today, Nina shares with us her personal and professional financial journey. We talk about how the fintech industry evolved and what happens at the crossroads of financial services and technology, and how fintech can empower people to make better financial decisions. Nina is very honest about her own financial journey. She's all about transparency, tells us how she got into debt, and gives us her top apps and tools that have aided her to spend, save, and get started investing. I also wanted to let you know that we are not financial advisors. So the articles, the information made available on Vespot.com and in this podcast are provided just for educational purposes and do not constitute financial advice. So make sure you consult with an independent financial advisor for advice on your specific circumstances. Thank you. Hello, Nina. Hello, hello. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm glad that it's Friday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so nice to see you. So for our listeners, we've been working together with, with Nina a long time ago, a few years ago. I was just setting up Vespod and yeah, Nina showed up and she was like, yeah, well, I love what you do. And I come from the States and let's talk about money. I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's been a journey since then. You've been working in fintech, financial technology, uh, you now work for a big fintech company, but you're also passionate about yeah, helping also women, I think, uh, financially. So today we're going to talk about financial inclusion and fintech, like the apps you're using, how, how you empower yourself financially also using technology. So do you want to tell me a little bit more about yourself from maybe your background to what led you to, to work in financial technology? Absolutely. Actually, I was thinking about this the other day. I remember we met at Camden Market for the first time yes. in a little like coffee shop. And I was, I was just so excited about what you were doing because I thought it was just absolutely necessary. And wow, so much time has flown. But 
Yeah, gosh, where to start? Well, I'm Nina. As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm I'm American. I'm originally from California. And I grew up in the Silicon Valley. My parents were kind of, I call them the OG engineers during the dot-com boom. My mom worked for Hewlett Packard for decades. And that's a very important part of my story because actually the tech part kind of revisits in my life several times. But um, I actually originally started my career wanting to work for the CIA. I love it. <laughs> Which a lot of people find really funny because um, if you know me, I am I'm very civically and politically engaged, but I'm also just like a very open, fun-loving, friendly person. And so they kind of go, how would you have worked at the CIA? But um, <laughs> I... I actually worked in the Obama administration and then started this uh, master's program. And during that time, I needed to find a job. And it's really funny because at the school that I went to, everyone just defaulted to investment banking or consulting because that was just the high earning (laughs) jobs. And I found myself just kind of following like a sheep. And I was just like, oh, all right, well, I guess... I don't really know what I want to do right now. And I would apply and I kept getting rejected (laughs) over and over. One of the banks rejected me in less than 12 hours. It's quite funny, actually. But I finally was accepted for a role uh, for an interview at MasterCard. And that was a very lucky opportunity for me because I was able to work on the digital payments team. But that was also the summer when Monzo was just starting out. So they were Mondo back then. Starling was still in their alpha. Revolut was on the MasterCard start path, the incubator there. And so as someone who had actually left the Silicon Valley and grew up around tech and increasingly consumer tech, it was really interesting for me to all of a sudden be exposed to all of these companies that wanted to be at the crossroads of financial services and technology. To me, the the broader vision, and I'm such an idealist and romantic at heart, the idea of using technology to improve people's financial lives and their financial health, that's what won me over. And immediately I fell in love with fintech. I worked for MasterCard in London and also um, in Vienna, which was a lovely experience. And then I came back and helped launch the Starling Bank current account. So I should disclose that full disclosure for anything (laughs) else that's said in this conversation. I then worked for an open banking startup for a while um, out in East London, very much the startup vibes. We were in a one room office, like converted office off Brick Lane. And it was very much like a startup vibe, small group of people. Now I work for a Swedish payments company. And on the side, I am also, I work with a lot of charities and I sit on the steering committee of the Joint Refugee Action Network. So that's also another thing that's very close to my heart. Yeah, no, uh, super interesting uh, path, actually. And it's it's good to have you in Europe and bring a bit of this, you know, American yes. <laughs> startup vibe to London. I was really interested in, you know, you, we've been talking offline and you've been looking at financial inclusion. So I was reading some data from the FCA, 12 million people in the UK 
had low financial resilience, meaning they will struggle with bills and loan repayments. And the data shows 2 million of those who are not financially resilient have become so since February 2020. So the pandemic is putting people in a very tricky situation at the moment. Can you just give us a brief overview of you know, what is financial inclusion and what is financial resilience? Yes, absolutely. And I, I'm going to go ahead and actually provide both kind of an academic definition for it, but also expand on it because I think it's important to understand both. So the World Bank defines financial inclusion as meaning individuals and businesses have access to useful and affordable financial products and services that meet their needs. So everything from transaction banking or retail banking, rather, payments, savings, credit, and insurance, but importantly, delivered in a responsible and sustainable way. For financial resilience, I think a really great quote is from Dr. Anila Rutgers University, and she defines it as the ability to cover the expense of life events, negative things like the loss of a job, but also positive things like having a child and the impact that that has on someone's income, their assets, and, and just even their, their language and how they are able to go with the flow, roll with life's punches, as it were. And this can Im- include things like having another child, which does actually affect uh, your financial situation, unemployment, divorce, widowhood, disability, your car breaking down, you breaking down uh, with health problems. It just affects people in, in a lot of different ways. And then, of course, you have just like the macro events of being laid off, a global pandemic, for example, <laughs> recessions, but just so many other things like this. And so I think it's really important because we're sitting in London, both of us. And we, I think, in the developed, using air quotes, in the developed world, I think we oftentimes think of financial inclusion and financial resilience as something that happens over there, in air quotes, in, yeah. in some other part of the world, in a developing country. We we think often times of like mobile banking apps like M-Pesa in, in Kenya or Tala, which is a, a microfinance in developing countries. But actually, financial inclusion and financial resilience are problems that do need to be addressed both here in the UK and more broadly in Europe and across developing countries. The Financial Conduct Authority estimated that there's about 1.3 million people in the UK that don't have an access to a bank account. I mean, think about just like in the Instagram world we live in, there are there are influencers with 1.3 million followers. Yeah. Imagine if every single one of those followers had Instagram, but didn't have a bank account. That's, I mean, that really is something that I think about often. And I think as well, it's really important to think of what financial inclusion is not, especially in the lens of uh, the UK or in developing countries. And in recent years, especially with the rise of fintech, there's been a lot of companies that call themselves financial inclusion companies. It's become this sort of like banner that people want to hold up and they're saying like, oh, yes, we're financial inclusion. And it's almost, you know, you've discussed this before, um, like green investing and stuff and green washing yeah. when it comes to like climate. But it's become this almost 
CSR type of initiative, like to say that you're a financial inclusion company. So you get like everyone from high street banks to investment apps saying that they're a financial inclusion company. And um, while I can see how they have come to that conclusion, in my personal opinion, I think it's it's unfair to categorize themselves as that based on the actual definition of what financial inclusion is. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I guess the, I mean, with the pandemic that just accelerated this, this trend. And when we look at, you know, updated numbers post pandemic, I think these are not going to be very encouraging. Who do you think has been the most impacted by the crisis on the, on the podcast and Vespot? We've been talking about women, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not the only, I mean, and women is such a big category. So who do you think has been, uh, you know, really impacted by, by the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. It's super interesting because I keep I keep hearing this and seeing more and more articles coming out about the fact that the pandemic has disproportionately affected women. And it's, you know, you see the headlines where women are saying feels like we're going back to the 1950s. And it really, really breaks my heart. I think when I approach anything that I think of, I try to come at it as a very intersectional feminist kind of way. So thinking of not just women, but also um, maybe to quote Angela Davis, I think across women, race, class, religion, all of these things do compound and affect someone's life experience. Actually, just today, this morning, there was a Guardian article that was saying that women are, again, disproportionately affected. And it said that 43% of women, according to the Fawcett Society, and 50% of Black and minority ethnic working women, compared to 35% of white working men, were worried about their job and promotion prospects, while one-third of working women have lost work or hours because of pandemic-related childcare issues. That's huge. That is huge. And then there was a survey that found that due to school and childcare closures during the pandemic, it had disproportionately hit Black and minority ethnic working mothers. So 44% of them lost work or hours due to the lack of childcare compared to the 34% of working white mothers. And it's something that I think is a very, just like money, which is why I'm so glad we had Vestpod. When I first moved here as an American, people often told me that there's not a race problem in the UK, there's a class problem. I would argue that there's multiple layers. It's like an onion, you just peel things back and there's always something else. And I find that we already know that there's disproportionately more BIPOC or BAME women working in essential jobs. So on the front lines, whether that's in the NHS or even working um, at your local grocery store. And then you compound the fact that either there are working in hospitality, hospitality has been completely shut down. And so now where, where do they go? What do they do? Their children up until the second lockdown are home with them. It very much becomes a tale of two cities where some of us are incredibly privileged that we are able to sit at home and continue working. And even in some cases, be saving more money than we ever would. It's kind of like the the financial planner's dream come true, this pandemic, where all of a sudden it's like all of those things that they said that you should cut out, those, you know, like movie tickets and 
going out and drinks with your girlfriends or whatever, like it's just been cut off. So it's not even an option. So a lot of us are seeing our savings just blossom. Whereas there are people who have completely on the other side of the coin have completely lost their livelihoods. So I think it's something that we really need to be mindful about when we think about the pandemic and more importantly about the response where governments around the world are very much thinking about building back better it's going to be absolutely integral that we keep women in mind and make sure we're supporting them with things like childcare, for example, and making sure there's adequate budget for that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And that's really something I've observed, you know, within the, you know, Vespod community and, you know, our, in our Facebook groups, online mm -hmm. events, but also our audiences, you know, people are really struggling. Some women are really struggling at the moment at home. They don't have a job. They're looking for another job or like for, you know, more income. So, you need to address like these issues. And at the same time, I have women who tell me, you know, I saved so much money during lockdown one, lockdown two. Why do I do with this savings? So that, you know, creates an even like bigger gap. So even like we're talking about, you know, gender pay gap, uh, racial gaps, but now we are like, okay, that it's actually even, even bigger than that. And we'll have to speak to like very, you know, not niche, but like different types of, of, of people within this category. So that makes it even more complicated. Now, if we go back to just financial inclusion, mm -hmm. in your view, do you think financial inclusion has arisen as a byproduct of, of fintech? I'm thinking, you know, there's lots of new banks, online banks. You talked about Monzo, Starling, Revolut. These should offer maybe cheaper services because they're all online. Do you think you know, there's a solution like using technology to actually help financial inclusion. Yeah, this is something I think about a lot, especially because I work in fintech and it's something that I'm researching independently of my day job. As someone who's a very product focused person, I always think about things from the lens of what we call jobs to be done in the industry or the user customer centric, very, very obsessed with that. And so I think we have to think about the financial inclusion from the shoes of the people who need to be financially included. So what is the problem that they are solving for? What is, what is it that they're trying to get done in their life? For some of us, it will be, you know, I have this surplus money. I've saved a lot and now I, I don't really know what to do with it. Interest rates are low. Do I put it into markets, you know, and, and you've been wonderful and offering various viewpoints on that. But then you have people who are, you know, I'm struggling to make it paycheck to paycheck right now. And I just need 50 pounds to get me to the end of the month. So we have to think very specifically about who we're addressing, first of all, and not broad brush say everything is financial inclusion. Have an app. And have a card and now you're financially included. We yeah. have to think about what, to what end, what is the goal? In my mind though, a better way to think about financial inclusion is like thinking about health. So everyone has a very different health situation. Some of us have pre-existing conditions. Some of us, you know, were born with allergies. Some of us grew up disabled. We would never think to administer the same treatment for breast cancer as we would for clinical depression, right? They're just wildly different things. And so I think, well, asking if financial inclusion has arisen as a byproduct of fintech is kind of like asking 
if health has arisen as a byproduct of health tech, health has always existed. And you know, financial inclusion has always existed. There's always been someone financially included. I think of it more of fintech has been very useful as tools to help us achieve what we want out of it, just like health tech, whether that's Babylon Health and helping you, you know, get an appointment with your GP, that has been able to lower the, the friction of going in and actually addressing your health needs. FinTech has similarly been a tool to doing so. I think it's it's a positive, a net positive though. And I, I shouldn't be quite so negative. I think it is has been great. It has lowered the barrier for a lot of people, even with access to credit. We see, you know, that. Fintech has helped in that space for small businesses, for example, um, who are very much struggling during this time. So I'm I'm excited to see as Fintech continues to grow and mature, how we really close up and, and address financial inclusion at its core. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, Vespod is more on the, you know, educational side. So really for me, I mean, I'm passionate about, you know, improving financial literacy, But do you think actually financial literacy has a role to play in terms of improving financial inclusion, but also in terms of improving uh, financial equality? Yeah. So I think of financial literacy as something that's very, it, it begs the question of what the individual can do and then what you're up against systemically. So I think about this a lot in relation to actual literacy. So just like the literacy rate, right? So reading uh, and writing. And it, there's a reason that literacy is a key indicator of development in a country, right? Because the literacy rate measures the percentage of adults that can read or write in their common language in a country. And the higher the literacy rate is an indication of the higher standards of education. And, and the ability of the population to find formal employment. So similarly, financial literacy is a good indicator as well. I think, though, that you could be the most financially literate person in the world, but it's not going to necessarily make you the richest. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing with literacy. That me metaphor that I just gave is you could read every book in the world, but it still wasn't going to make you Barack Obama or <laughs> Bill Gates, right? So I think there is a lot that can be done and I'm so pro-literacy. There are still systemic things that need to be overcome. But I think a big part of overcoming those systemic issues is transparency and knowing what your money can do, where your money is falling short. If you are owed money <laughs> as well, um, that is a very empowering and gets us to a position though, and be equipped with information of, you know, average salary and go in and negotiate and make sure that I am on par with what my male colleague is making. If we know that there is access to investment and we know how to go about that and that there are options out there and not just that, but other women are doing it too, then that helps us act towards being able to do it. And that's really important. Oh, great. Thank you, Nina. I'd love to talk about your own personal finance journey because you've been working in fintech for quite a while. So when we talk about apps, products, what, you know, what can we use? 
on top of the education, and I know you're really passionate, you've been, you know, following Elvest in the US. That's a company that I really like. Sally Krocek, she's helping women, you know, invest their own money. So you've been learning a lot about money, obviously. How did you learn? And then after that, I'll ask you about maybe, maybe tools, but it's, it's really, you know, what's your financial journey? How do you feel today about, about your own finances? Yeah, I will be very brutally honest because I think transparency is so important, especially with money, which is still such a taboo topic around the world. I had a very, I had a very privileged upbringing. And so my parents had done well for themselves. I've just been very privileged. And I also made a lot of mistakes that in hindsight, I want to share with people so that they don't make the same mistakes. Yes, please. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I I think we, we discussed this when we first met, just like the need to, to tell people about the mistakes we made. And that for me was, I went off to uni in the States and my mother said, you know, get a credit card, use it a little bit, make sure you pay it off and it will be good for you to start building your, your credit score. And in the States, credit is everywhere. We're a very credit-friendly country. But I then got on campus. And um, up until recently, they were allowed to actually advertise. Like the banks were allowed to just set up shop on college campuses and get people to sign up for credit cards. This is now no longer a thing that they can do. But they would say, here, have the 0% interest card. The fine print saying, you know, 0% interest for X amount of months. So I went and that you never read. <laughs> you never read the small print, which always traps you. And I got myself into so much debt. And I was very much chasing this idealized version of who I wanted myself to be as an adult, buying things that I could not afford. And then the interest started to compound. You know, Albert Einstein says <laughs> compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. It is not a wonder when it's the other way around and you're in debt. I I promise you this. And so I racked up, I want to say maybe nearly $10,000 of debt. And I felt like I was drowning. It was horrendous. And I'm still paying it off. I think I am so quick to share this with people because I want them to learn from my mistakes. I have gone about from being very low, very in the red to now in a position where I was able to use a lot of fintech tools to consolidate my debt, to put myself on a plan to pay it off. And actually I will be able to pay it off soon, which is great. But then that was, you know, that was fixed. The interest was no longer compounding. And I was able to then think about other things in my life. I was able to then focus on Moving from this headspace, and this sounds super like astrology, like touchy-feely, but moving from this space of scarcity to a headspace of abundance and think, okay, you're not drowning anymore. Now, how do you set yourself up to thrive? And so that said, I've, you know, I've started using tools to start putting aside money then I kind of dipped my toe into investment. I got really excited about slowly seeing that pot of money grow. Just it's sitting there, right? Even if it was 50 pounds a month, 
or 20 pounds a month that putting it aside and then seeing it grow with the markets, you know, don't check it every single day, but you know, over time, long-term, it was really great to see. And so I've had a lot of encouragement from women like yourself and, and the Vespa community, but also I have to give a big shout out to my mother who I think it's funny because we don't really talk about money. It's still very taboo in our family. And I think I come from an immigrant household where we are very much in the mindset of scarcity. There is never enough. There's just, you can have a million pounds in savings and still that's not enough. But my mother, when I worked briefly in the U S you know, when I got a job there, she sat down with me and said, okay, let's look at your pension or your in the States 401k and how, where do we want to put them? And she walked through and explained to me what everything meant, why it was important. She talked through the investments that she has, that she and my father have. And that was very, very useful for me because it's something that I think we don't talk about enough in society in general, but also within families. And she was very upfront and she said, listen, if should anything happen to me or dad, this is what's going to happen. This is all the things that we have in place. And seeing that and her being very honest about it made me realize like, oh, wow, okay, she's setting an example for me. And hopefully if I one day have a daughter, I will hope to do the same as well. Uh, thank you so much, Nina, for, for sharing your, your journey. This is so important. And again, it's a journey. And I feel a lot of people will relate because be, being at the beginning of your financial journey and it's hard, like, you know, you're young, you're making these mistakes, you have debt, you feel, you know, you're never going to be able to have any savings or have any investments, but actually you can. It just, you know, takes time, takes a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. Thanks for mentioning, you know, what you call maybe spirituality, but everything around money mindset. For me, it's so important important and thinking about money you know in a more positive way thinking that it's okay to ask for more and you can actually get more money thinking you can spend less money save this money but again that's you know we have so many limiting beliefs around money i think it's a good exercise and it's great to talk about it and i love that your mom took the time you know to sit down with you mm -hmm. i will definitely do it with my with my children because this is just like a, you know it can be just a one-off thing it's going to be hard for everyone but that can change someone's life so even yeah. if you know you don't do it with your family maybe do it with a friend do it with you know someone from you know the Vespot community or whoever but have this first money conversation because I guess you will learn you know so much about it and it's so good to hear now you're you know also investing money and I guess you've been using some apps to do that I mean in, in your journey so I'd love to know you know, what are your favorite uh, tools maybe at the moment or the things that really um, yeah. made a difference? And I know there's so many out there, yeah. but there's different categories that are quite interesting. So um, maybe I'll give like kind of my favorite from a highlight. And, and I should also caveat that I'm not a financial advisor. So this is not advice. I'm obviously biased having worked at Starling Bank, but I really enjoy using Starling Bank. It's female founded as well, which is... Yeah, I was I was about to ask you. It's such a cool story. Anne Bodden is, is actually publishing her a second book and I'm really looking forward yeah. to read that. She's an incredible woman and I am so lucky to have been able to work with her. I think Starling's approach is they're very customer centric and Anne is just, she is a veteran of the banking industry, but also she's a technologist at heart. And so she's very much building for the modern person. And 
I, dare I say, even the modern woman, I really enjoy using the app. It's it's very intuitive. And so for me, Starling has been wonderful. And actually, it's so funny because my girlfriends will, you know, have a peruse in my banking app or I'll send them a link to like, they have a settle up link where, you know, if you have gone before coronavirus off for, for dinner, you can settle up quite quickly and all these things. And we are increasingly having more friends kind of come aboard and go, wow, this is a really interesting proposition. They also have joint accounts, which are great if you you know live with a partner or something. And they introduced carer cards almost during the during lockdown where you could issue another card to someone else. So if you're vulnerable or ill or whatever, or you can't, you know, go out for whatever reason, you could actually issue another card and then that person could go do the shopping for you where you would still have visibility of where the money's being spent and everything. So that was I'm I'm a big fan of Sterling. I'm also a really big fan of Manis, founded by Norris. And they're very much focused at more of an immigrant community, but really great product. Love what they're building there. In terms of budgeting and, and organizing your financing, I actually am someone, I'm going to be really honest with you, which is like sacrosanct to say as someone who works in fintech, but I just love a spreadsheet. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I just love a spreadsheet. Um, or even a notebook. You know? I, yeah, a notebook. Like yeah. right before payday, I always kind of go, and you've got all these apps that will kind of do it for you, but I'll still write it out. Something about writing it out or seeing it is very important to me. And I um, there's a content creator, Patricia Bright. I stumbled upon her on Instagram and she is, she's got a budget spreadsheet that she was like just talking about and I love that she was talking about it because then so many people went and like just downloaded her spreadsheet and started using it. I do like to see everything out in front of me as well and write it down. But I think for savings, I'm a big fan of those kind of uh, set it and forget it type of savings. So I know in Monzo and Starling, you can do roundups as well, but I quite like Chip which kind of they use open banking to kind of look at your transactions and your your spending history. And they'll kind of try and gauge how much you can afford to tip over into your savings account, which is really great. Um, and you barely, it's just enough that like you barely notice it, it'll come out, but it's already grown so quickly over time. And Moneybox does the same thing. And then I would be remiss if I didn't mention Pension B which is also female founded, um, Romy Sabova. She's looking to actually, she might be the first really of the new new guard of London FinTech to list on the London Stock Exchange, which is really, really exciting. I saw that last week. That's amazing. It's so, I'm so thrilled for her. She's an amazing woman. And I think Pension B is really relevant for um, the Vestpod community as well, because what they do is they kind of consolidate your pensions. And then they're also right now really looking at green finance. And I just got an email the other day about um, their first fossil fuel free fund. Say that five times fast, but they're really looking at divesting from things like fossil fuels, like armaments and that sort of thing, which is increasingly important to our generation. But also there is a lot of, it's, I forgot what the exact number is, but there's billions of pounds of money that is lost in pensions that just are forgotten. And so I think, especially for our generation where maybe different from our parents who 
started a job, you know, you worked your way up, you worked there for decades, and then you got a gold watch on your way out at retirement, we move around a lot more, right? You know, millennials sometimes are pejoratively referred to as being flighty, but we do, you know, maybe three or four years at a company and then move on. Well, this actually means now we have a lot of different pension pots that are just all over the place. And we might not even know that they're there. We forgot that we had opted in when we signed our contract. And so Pension B does a really good job. If you just sit down for one afternoon and just bring together all the logins, they do all of the heavy lifting of actually moving that money into one place so that you can see it, um, check in on it and invest it in things that are important to you. So um, big shout out to Pension B. They are definitely one of my, my favorite fintech companies in London. Yeah, we, we interviewed Romy actually last year um, in December uh, oh. and she was fantastic. Uh, so friendly. Uh, so you can still watch the talk on, on YouTube. I'll, I'll, I will add the link. But yeah, I think pension is, is such an important issue for women and, you know, considering the the gender so pension gap is huge. Women retire on a portion savings of men. I say that all the time. Yeah. Uh, and we tend to opt out of, of pensions because we think we don't have enough money. We don't understand. You know, majority of people were saying they don't know, they didn't know their pension was actually invested in the in the stock market. So yeah. really, you know, go and check it out. It's so important. Mm-hmm. And who else do you think is making investing accessible in the UK? We talked a lot. I mean, for Vespot, for me, there's different levels. So you talked about Moneybox is a really good tool to get started. Yeah. Uh, pension B, you can look if you already have a pension, then you could use Pension B. And then the first levels, maybe in terms of robo-advisors, do you, have you used robo-advisors? Do you like what these guys are doing? Yeah. It's useful. So um, there's so many of them out there. I, I'll list off a few. I'm a big fan of the team at Wealthify. They are now actually owned by Aviva, but was um, partially female founded as well. Wealthify is really great. Nutmeg, a lot of people might, might have seen there. Uh, back in the day, they had like this cartoon squirrel that I kept seeing over the tube. <laughs> and I was like, what is this squirrel? And then I got, oh, okay, squirreling away. Squirreling money, yeah. Money away. And then I was yeah. like, oh, okay, I get it. Abundance, we love it. I think Wealth Simple and Money Farm are also really great. Uh, what I do love about FinTech is that they have democratized, if you will. I've I've put that in air quotes, democratized access to markets very much because It used to be you had to have like, you know, tens of thousands of pounds to invest. And now, you know, some of the thresholds may be 500 pounds, which might be a bit out of reach for some people, but some of them are actually as low as 50 pounds. And I think for me, in my investing journey, I was very, I am a very risk averse person. I'll just go out and say it, but the ability to just put a little bit in where at the time, I was very lucky where 50 pounds wasn't going to make a massive difference in my livelihood. I was I was in that mindset where it's okay if I lose this completely, but I was able to take that step forward and say, I'm going to do it. It was small enough as well, right? And so then seeing that grow, though, kind of gave me the confidence to continue doing so. And so I, I definitely give them kudos for, for that. So Wealthify, Nutmeg, Money Farm, Wealth Simple are all great options as well. Yeah, not a great platform. You know, if they're also regulated by the FCA under the FSCS, just check it out. But there's tons of Please platforms. Please always make there. sure yeah. 
there was a there was a story <laughs> this week that I was like, oh my goodness, uh, someone's operating and using influencer marketing, but they're not regulated I, by the FCA. I saw that. That's crazy. So, <laughs> yeah, always just double check. Always make sure financial conduct authority. Just make sure double check your platform is there. Nina, thank you so much for sharing your, your journey, but I have five more questions for you. Uh, these are like quick fire questions. People tend to love them. Can you tell me what is your top financial goal at the moment? My top financial goal for the moment is I'm working on a side project right now, and it is just to save up to build it and, and commit myself to this project. So that's my goal right now. And come back to the wallet once you launch. That's your goal number two. <laughs> What's the best financial decision you've ever made? The best financial decision I ever made was walking away from a job that was undervaluing me. It was a great job, but, um, and I was very, of course, fortunate that I had options and that I didn't have to take it, it but um, walking away from it because I could tell that it wasn't going to be a good fit for me culturally, but also pay does matter. The The pay gap, it, it does matter as well. And I think we we discussed this, actually, there's a quote in your book, You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich, where I talk about why the pay gap is such a big deal still. Yeah. And the worst financial decision? Well, I alluded to it already. Uh, definitely using a credit card without understanding how it works. Yeah. What is financial independence for you? Financial independence for me is being able to live a fulfilling life without constantly having the fear of, of scarcity over me. Yeah. Living, living in the mindset of abundance is financial independence. I like that. And... What are the things you spend the most money on at the moment from home? <laughs> oh my gosh, right now, books. Uh, I think that's been a very common answer. Um, but I actually, this will be a, a fun one. I actually just splurged and bought myself my first ever pair of like really nice heels. And I've been saving up and contemplating this purchase for seven years now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, and I have way oversaved for actually buying it, but it's just something that like I have, I've always wanted this pair of like really lovely, like designer shoes and I couldn't bring myself to do it, but um, I just kept putting money away and I was like, one day I'm going to buy it. It will be the right moment. And so this year I needed a little joy in my life. So I finally bought it after saving up for seven years, contemplating it. Thank you, Nina. You've talked a little bit about that, but what, what are you working on? What's next for, for you? Yeah, right now I'm very much dedicated to the idea of financial inclusion and financial resilience here in the UK and then broadly in Europe. And I'm doing a lot of research on that right now. If you are a software engineer and you are open to new projects, please do get in touch with me because um, I'd love to have you as part of my project. And, and just constantly banging on about financial feminism. Yeah, we love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, 
Thank you so much, Nina. It's been fantastic, you know, catching up with you. I hope I can see you soon. Where can we find you? Is Twitter the best place? LinkedIn? Um, I, I do tweet a lot. You can find me on Twitter at Nina Mohanty. You can also follow me on Instagram if you'd like at Nina.Mohanty. I definitely post a lot about civic duty and, and whatever's going on in the world, current events that are important to me. But um, that's usually where you can find me. Great. Thank you so much, Nina. Thank you. See you soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on Vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at Vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon.